continuing our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith, looking specifically uh, paragraph by paragraph through the confession. So far we've gone through chapters 1 and 2, and then we got through chapter 3, paragraph 6. So we're on page 8, I believe, of the handout. We'll pick up at paragraph 7. And this, again, is concerning God's eternal decree. That's the overall topic. So in chapter 1, we looked at the Holy Scriptures, the truth that God has revealed, the necessity of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the authorship of the Scriptures, um, the original languages of the Scripture, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And then chapter 2, we looked at God and the Holy Trinity, the unity of the Godhead, his various attributes, both those which he cannot share with any creature and those which he shares with men and angels. We looked at the independence of God, his self-sufficiency. We looked at the three persons in the Godhead. And then in chapter 3 thus far, we've looked at God's eternal decree concerning (coughs) that God made this decree eternally from all eternity, freely, not under any compulsion, unchangeably, meaning that what he has decreed will most certainly come to pass, and that it comprehends all things. We saw that God in his decree glorifies himself, that there is a predestination unto eternal life of the elect, and there is a foreordination to eternal destruction for the reprobate, and that in both of these cases God is glorified, and that these decrees of um, election and reprobation are in fact, unchangeable and concerned particular persons, not classes of people. And then, um, now we'll pick up paragraph 7. After 6, dealing with the purpose to save and what were the means to accomplish that end, now we get to paragraph 7. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures, to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. Okay, so a couple things in this specific portion of the confession. When God deals with reprobates, he manifests certain things about himself. Now, this is an unsearchable thing in terms of the counsel of it, but not in terms of God's explanation of it in Scripture. There is a searching out that the Scripture performs so that we can understand, not the decree itself, but specifically, what is God doing in this decree? God has the right to extend or withhold mercy according to his good pleasure. He is not bound to show mercy to any man. It's not like he has to be just. That's a natural attribute in God. God's mercy is voluntary. He chooses to show mercy, whether he pleases or not. God cannot have a choice like, I I am pleased or I'm not pleased to be just. That doesn't happen in God. He is just of necessity. But when he shows mercy, he can do that or not, depending on his will. So that's one thing we see there. Uh, God's dealings with the reprobate manifest in the primary doctrines there. The unsearchability of his will. That's the first thing that that manifests, that man cannot get into complete understanding of God's holy will. And then in the second thing that is manifest in reprobation is the glory of God's sovereign power over his creatures. That is, that he can take of one lump and make from that singular lump one vessel unto honor, which would be the elect, and one vessel unto dishonor. That would be the reprobate of whom we are speaking right now. And then the third thing in the, in the primary doctrines there, God's dealings with the reprobate manifest in this third place, the praise due to his glorious justice. So God is going to manifest his justice on the wicked. And then the other thing is that reprobation, the second primary doctrine in this portion of the confession is that reprobation can be described as withholding mercy, as passing by, and as ordaining. So we notice there, those are three phrases. And those are all scripture phrases with the, with the 
language of the Bible included. God withholds mercy from the wicked that he ordains to destruction. In fact, there are specific passages of scripture that are very clear. Um, There are some that are indirect where it says God has not ordained us to wrath, meaning that he has ordained some to wrath. And then there are others that are direct that say that God foreordained certain people to this condemnation, ungodly men, etc. And you read those texts of scripture within the uh, study of the confession before this class. Okay, and then in the eighth paragraph, the confession says, The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election, so that this doctrine affords matter of praise, reverence, admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all who sincerely obey the gospel. So primary doctrines from this paragraph, first is that predestination is a high mystery, and that it must therefore be handled prudently in the care and concern that is shown to make sure that it's not misused. So that's the first thing. And then the second primary doctrine is that the assurance of election is rooted in the certainty of effectual calling. It's very important. And this would contrast, for example, with uh, someone who might say, well, I had an experience at one point in my life, and I can look back and I can point to a day where this thing happened to me, and because this thing happened to me, therefore I know that I'm elect. Well, the scriptures don't actually hold out that kind of a paradigm for the assurance of salvation. The biblical paradigm is multitudinous, like there are different parts to it, not multitudes, but there are various parts, I should say. One part would be, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I believe in Christ, therefore I shall be saved. That's inferential assurance of salvation based off the promise of God, I have believed and therefore I conclude that I shall be saved. Then we have what is known as evidential assurance. That is, does your life manifest evidence that you actually believe? Because if you don't have the effectual vocation, as it calls it here, the calling of God, then you can't conclude that you will at last reach eternal glory and therefore were elected in time past. So that's what it's talking about. The assurance of someone's election which the Bible gives us to understand we ought to strive for and we may possess, that assurance does not come to wicked people who don't repent of their sins and believe the gospel, who aren't growing in grace and knowledge. So that's the idea there of assurance of election. is not like some you got an intuition or you can point back to something that happened to you in the past. There has to be an ongoing manifestation in a person's life if they would like the assurance to grow in grace and knowledge, as Peter puts it, add to your uh, virtue, or excuse me, add to your faith, diligence, and diligence, virtue, and so forth. In First Peter 1, he gives us a whole string of things by which we may have the assurance of our election. And it all concerns our effectual calling and the working of the Holy Spirit. Okay, third major doctrine, or primary doctrine in this paragraph. Effectual calling is manifested by attending the revealed will of God in Scripture and yielding obedience to his revealed will. Okay, so this is, again, how do we know someone is effectually called then if we want to have assurance of our election? And that's contingent on being assured of our effectual calling. How do we know we're effectually called? Attendance on the revealed will of God in Scripture. Meditating on the law of God day and night as it talks about in Psalm 1. Or a person who loves the law with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law, and then a person who yields obedience to God's revealed will. Notice it doesn't say sinless or perfect obedience, but obedience, a person who submits themselves to the will of God revealed in the scriptures, both in what they're supposed to believe in their doctrines and in how they're supposed to live or worship God and their daily life. 
All these things are the revealed will of God. And then finally, at the end there, the fourth primary doctrine concerns the glorification of God and the edification of the saints through this doctrine of election. Though it is a high mystery, it is not to be put off to the side or silenced or ignored because that takes the glory away from God. And it also takes edification away from God's people. Now, the wicked and Satan, they try to make the doctrine of election somehow the opposite of what leads to holiness. But if you study the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, you find out pretty quickly, election is always the foundation of holiness. We'll see this in Deuteronomy 14, the Sabbath, Lord willing, in our scripture reading. Election is the foundation for holiness. If you don't believe in the doctrine of election, you're an unholy person. You can't be holy unless you believe in the doctrine of election. And that doesn't mean people have to understand it all perfectly. Some people are confused. Some people are misled. But the denial of the doctrine of election robs God of his glory, which is one of the most profane things a person can do. So holiness is founded on the doctrine of election. If God didn't choose us, we would not be holy. We would be left in our own wickedness and our own profanity. Okay, so that's the end of chapter 3. Any questions from either of you men concerning chapter 3 or any of the things we've looked at? No? David, do you have anything there? I'm assuming not. Chapter 4 of creation. Paragraph 1. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. In the beginning, to create and make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Very power-packed, just filled with scripture truth about creation. First notice the Trinitarian nature of creation. Who created the heavens and the earth? The Father did. The Son did. The Holy Ghost did. And there are various passages cited here, Hebrews 1-2, concerning the Son, John 1, 2, Genesis 1, 2 concerns the Holy Spirit of God, Job 26, 13, etc. All these show us that all three persons in the Godhead were involved in creation. Now, also notice that creation manifests the glory of God in these specific attributes, power, wisdom, goodness. That's very important because that brings us back. We talked about the Trinity, and remember I was saying the confession is a consistent whole, So the Trinity and the glory of God in his decree, those tie together in the doctrine of creation. Because we have God creating, we have his attributes, we have his Trinity, and we have the execution of God's decree in the work of creation. We've looked at God's decree. So the work of creation is a means by which, one of the two major means by which God executes his decrees, the works of creation and the works of providence. Those are the two things. And we'll look at providence Uh, later. But here we're looking at creation. God created. Now another thing. So first, creation was purposed by the whole trinity to glorify God's attributes. That's the first thing to remember. First major doctrine. Creation was purposed by the whole trinity to glorify the attributes of God. That means that creation is not for its own sake. Creation is not for man's sake. Creation is not for the angel's sake. It's not for the sake of Mother Earth or some mistaken godless notion that pagans have. It's not for the environment. It's not for the elite. It's not for even the saints of God. Creation is ultimately, finally, for the the glory of God so that his attributes will be known. And that actually makes the doctrine of reprobation make more sense, which we were just talking about. Because if it's all about man that God created... How could God pass by somebody? But if it's all about God and manifesting his attributes, it makes perfect sense. God's going to manifest his justice on those people to be inflicted for their sins. So, yeah, if it's for his glory and it's all to manifest his attributes, then we see clearly why that makes sense in the doctrine of reprobation. And then the second major doctrine, creation occurred in the beginning, out of nothing, and of all visible and invisible things. Again, creation occurred 
in the beginning, out of nothing, and of everything, visible or invisible. That's very important. When we say it happened in the beginning, we're saying that there is nothing before the beginning. There isn't a billion years, a trillion years, a thousand years, a day. There's nothing before the beginning when God said, let there be light and there was light. Nothing before that in the created order. Only God. So, creation occurred in the beginning. And then second, out of nothing. Meaning, matter is not eternal as the pagans imagined. Matter always existed and then God formed it into these current shapes that it has now. This is evolutionary dogma and ancient pagan doctrine. Doctrine. So it's in the beginning, out of nothing, and then everything. There isn't an exception. There isn't a world created by Satan, and then a world created by God, and then these two are in conflict with each other as the ancient Gnostics imagined. The Bible's clear. God created all things, visible and invisible, by the word of his power in the space of six days. Nothing was used that he formed. He made everything first and then formed it into the shapes that he chose. And then the third doctrine, creation was in the space of six days and all very good. So there we have the time of the creation. God did it in six ordinary days. And then all very good. The goodness of God manifests in his creation as God declared it all to be good. So that's paragraph one. Paragraph two, after God had made all other creatures... He created man, male, and female with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their heart and power to fulfill it, and yet under the possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Besides this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God, and had dominion over the creatures. So primary doctrines here in this paragraph. First is God's image consists in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, or the law written in the heart. So the knowledge, man has innate knowledge gifted to him by God. That knowledge makes him a moral creature because morality is based off the foundation of reason. And a dog doesn't have morality because it doesn't have reason. A man can discern the difference between acts. He can be informed of his duty and he can execute based off of that information or fail to execute as the case of sin is. But in any case, the image of God consists in the capacity to know as God knows, not in the same manner of knowledge by knowing all things immediately at once, not in the same extent But in the specifics that God reveals, man may know what God knows on those points. So there is knowledge and then righteousness and holiness. Second primary doctrine from this paragraph. Man, when he was first created by God, had the power to keep the law that was written on his heart. But he had a free will that was mutable. It was subject to change. So the law written, but subject to change, mutably Man could fall, in other words. He's not God, so he's not immutable. And therefore, there's this possibility that his nature could change. And then, in addition to that that, uh, law written in the heart, there is an added commandment. And that's the third Mm -hmm. thing in our primary doctrines here. A specific tree of knowledge and good and evil prohibition. Do not eat of this particular tree. So, the law written on the heart... That's the moral law, and then this particular positive law, don't eat of this tree. And then the fourth primary doctrine is that man had happy communion with God and dominion while he kept God's commandment. Okay, so those are the four primary doctrines. Any questions on chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 4 concerning creation? No? No? David, you have any questions? Uh, nope, I'm following along. Go okay. good. All right. Chapter 5 of Providence, paragraph 1. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all his creatures 
actions and things, or excuse me, govern all creatures, actions and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his, uh, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So primary doctrines here. First, God upholds his creation in every detail, governing all creatures, actions, and things. So we talked about the doctrine of creation. Now this is the things that God created. How do they keep existing? How do they reach their appointed ends in the decree of God? That's what providence describes. Providence gives us how does God uphold these things, keep them actually existing? And then what about all the actions his creatures take? What about all the creatures themselves? What about everything that exists? How does that all stay together and continue on in this specific decree God had? And that is the doctrine of providence. So second primary doctrine. This providence is most wise and holy and it infallibly comes to pass, meaning it cannot fail to come to pass. God uses wisdom. We could say, well, God has almighty power, so he can exercise brute force on his creation. No, he uses wisdom. Everything is ordered in a way that is suited. When you have even the doctrine of election and reprobation, you see that God uses means that is, are suitable to the ends. Because for the elect, the means of God satisfying his justice and his mercy are perfectly met in the cross of Christ. There's a wisdom and a fitness to God showing mercy and justice. All the other religions, they have perhaps God showing mercy, but he's unjust. Because he has to kind of overlook the sins, pretend they didn't occur, pretend they're not real, something like that. That's a denial of the justice of God in order to say he can be merciful. This is the conundrum of Islam, for example, or Judaism. How can God be just on your notion? He's going to accept an animal in your place rather than punishing a human. That doesn't make any sense. And, of course, the Old Testament pointed that out, that that doesn't make any sense. They had to repeat the sacrifices every time. And then with the reprobate, God gives them over to what they want. So there's a fitness to a reprobate burning in everlasting destruction because they will not submit themselves to God. They do not want to be subject to his law and therefore they deserve to be punished. But God uses wisdom in the execution of his decrees in this work of providence. And all that he has ordained will infallibly come to pass. There is no failing in anything he's determined. And then the third major doctrine or primary doctrine here God chooses all things freely and, meaning he's not pushed from without, he does so freely, and then again immutably, unchangeably fixed. God has fixed all his creatures, actions, and things in this creation that he made, all the events that come to pass, all the deeds, all the words, all the affections, every single last thing from the greatest to the smallest infallibly comes to pass according to his decree. And then finally, the fourth primary doctrine under paragraph one, providence glorifies the attributes of God. God is the main character in history. Put it that way. Uh, when people study historiography, that is the science of how do you do history. It's the department of philosophy, historiography. God is the main player in history because of the doctrine of providence, because of the truth of what he's doing. He is accomplishing things so that his attributes are exalted. Now, it mentions some. Wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So the manifold works of God and providence, in one way or another, exalt God in these ways, in these specific glorious attributes for which God will be praised. So the providential view of history, in other words, is the only appropriate way to think about history, that God is accomplishing his decree and he's glorifying his attributes. And then paragraph two, 
Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. All right, now, um, God in his foreknowledge, he is the first cause. Okay, so we've talked about that. It's infallible. It's come to pass exactly in the fixed way. And yet, God is so wise that he can have things infallibly come to pass, but order them according to the nature of the thing. Man is not a stone, for example. Stones, in God's providence, he has a specific way that he governs them, either in the ordinary course of providence or in miracles. He's always accomplishing exactly the purpose he has for every particular stone or portion of a stone or the breaking of stones or the aggregating of stones. He has all that figured out. But it all works, generally speaking, according to kind of a mechanical law, gravity and the aggregation of stones and minerals and whatever. He has a specific way he does that. Man is very different. So he doesn't act on man as he acts on a stone. And so this is all it's saying here is that different types of things God made, he interacts with them in wisdom, and he accomplishes in and upon them and through them in such a way as is suited to their nature, the nature of second causes. God's the first cause. Everything else that he created are secondary causes. So the first primary doctrine here is that the theological doctrines or topics of study must be considered how they relate to each other. And that's what this is talking about. How does this fixed eternal decree relate to the nature of creation? How does God do that? Well, he does it through this doctrine of providence. And by this doctrine of providence, we see the fixedness of God's decree, but we also see the freedom of the creature, the exercise of the various types of secondary causes. Some of them are free. Some of them are... Um, necessary, meaning they cannot be avoided, they cannot be stopped. And some happen in this, this nature of contingency. One thing has to happen first to cause a second thing to come to pass. The sun, let me just illustrate, the sun goes by necessity through the sky, by a mechanical law that God has fixed. He causes it to go from one place to another. That is not a contingent action. There isn't some thing that has to happen first that causes the sun to rise. The pagans got this mixed up. Oh, we have to sacrifice my son or the sun won't rise. I got to kill my baby so that the sun keeps rising because they saw it going down in the sky and the solstice was coming and they got to do something. We got to fix it because they thought it's a contingent action. No, it's not. It's necessary. It's fixed by God. There's nothing that happens that causes this other thing to happen. But here's another illustration. How do people come into existence? Well, you have marriage, which requires two people who somehow arrange in their minds that they want to be married to this other person. So you have a man and a woman. And there has to be some circumstances that causes that marriage to come to pass. And then children come from it. There's lots of contingency there. Where do you live? What language do you speak? Do you ever come in contact with the person? Because if you don't come in contact with them, you can't be married to them. There's no virtual marriages. You know, you've got to have real people in real places. Things have to occur. Lots of contingency. People have to exercise their will. I choose this. I don't choose this. Your parents had to choose certain things. You had to choose certain things. The, your spouse has to choose certain things. You know, all these choices. There are lots of contingency and freedom there, as opposed to a stone that sits there and aggregates or loses or gets broken. or You know, that, all that happens without the, na- the nature of man being introduced. Okay, so the second major doctrine or primary doctrine we must distinguish between God immutably decreeing and second causes according to their limitations as creatures, the various types of creatures God has made. And then third is that providence orders things to fall out necessarily, freely, or contingently. All right, now, paragraph three. God, in his ordinary providence, maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. 
Okay, so here we see God's relationship to means. And God is not bound by them. That's the primary doctrine. The primary doctrine is God ordinarily makes use of means, but he's not bound by them. And this we talk about miracles, things of that nature, extraordinary providences, working through the prophets, working in his son, um, causing things to happen that are not by ordinary means. We pray for people to be healed, and God can heal them through means. He can heal them against the means that are being used, or he can choose, I'm not going to use means at all. I will heal them in answer to prayer. So God is free in that way. He does not get tied down to the means. Paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them and a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet... So as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Okay, so first primary doctrine in paragraph four, the divine attributes are more fully manifested by divine providence. Manifested meaning showing outward. Uh, If you have the sun in the sky and you have a clear day, the light of the sun is manifested. If you have clouds that block it, you may not see the greatness of the brightness of the sun. It might not be manifested in the same way. The sun is still the sun. God is still God. His glory is still his glory. But he chose through his works of providence to manifest his glory in a greater way than otherwise he would have. And so that's the first primary doctrine. The divine attributes are more fully manifested by providence. Second major doctrine or primary (coughs) doctrine here is that providence extends to all the acts of sin of angels and men. This is one of those things where the wisdom of God is greater than how we would comprehend and understand things. How is it possible that God has ordained sin, he's ordered it, bounded it, and he uses it for his glory? How is that possible and he's not somehow the origin of evil. How, how is that even, how can we explain that? How do we understand that? Well, this is the wisdom of God. This is the insearchability of his will, is that man in his finitude, he can't figure out, well, how would you do that? And yet God knows exactly how to do it, and he has done it. And he's continuing to do it. So, for instance, Christ on the cross is being murdered by the hands of wicked men, the Jews are denying Jesus as the Messiah, which is completely ungodly and wicked. They employ the Romans by means of false witness, and then by just sheer force of their screaming, they get Pontius Pilate, who thinks that he's innocent, to do something he knows is wrong. So you have the weakness of Pontius Pilate, you have the treachery of Judas Iscariot, you have the wickedness of the Jewish people, you have the machinations and the hypocrisy of their magistrates and their church rulers, All these evil things, God ordained every single one of them so that he could bring judgment against the Jews, so that he could expose the hypocrisy of their rulers, he could expose the weakness of the Roman system as much as they prided themselves on being just and civil. No, they weren't. They were evil and rotten to the core. He demonstrates the reality of reprobation, giving us an example in Judas Iscariot. So that we all thank God that we have, we're not like Judas Iscariot. If God has chosen and called us, we have an example of, whoa, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to be like him. So in all these ways, ultimately, God saving his people through the sins of all kinds of wicked people. How does he do that? But he does it. So God extends his providence, not just to the good things and people say, oh, God... This is God's providence because I got a new job and it pays more and I'm really happy. And yet Job says, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he recognizes that when the Sabaeans come and destroy his things or the children of the East come and destroy 
his, his, I think it was his house or his servants. They come in and they steal his cattle. And then these whirlwinds happen. He recognizes in all this, this is the hand of God. God gives, God takes away. So he sees God's hand at work. And that's how we're to think of it. God is accomplishing good even with the worst things. God works those to good. Okay, and then God's permission is joined with a wise and powerful bounding and government. Now back to Job. That's a perfect example. God is going to use Satan to accomplish his purposes in Job. He's going to permit Satan to do specific things. But he's going to bind Satan within a specific set of parameters of what he can and cannot do. And then he's going to order and govern all the things that Satan does such that God will accomplish, God will be the one accomplishing it at the end of the day. Even though the secondary cause is Satan, even though the secondary cause is the Sabaeans, even though all these other people are interacting with Job as friends, all these things that happen, God is accomplishing all these things. And that's important to understand. He puts hedges around even the evil things that happen that he permits to happen, and he governs over them. It's not like he's sitting there watching it, wringing his hands, oh, I hope this turns out the way that I had planned. No, he's accomplishing and governing so that his holy ends will be accomplished. And then the ends that God has in mind when he binds up the evil of men and permits the sins of men, these ends that he has in view are always holy. They will always accomplish exactly the holy end for which he's designed them. And then fifth major doctrine is that God is not the origin, nor is he the approver of sin. That's what the word author means. When it says God is not the author of sin, that means that it it comes from him as an origin, the source. God is the author of scripture. That means that the source of scripture is God himself. It came from his mind. The sinfulness that issued out into the world is from the creature, not from God. He's not the author. And he doesn't approve of sin. He condemns it. And that's part of what he's doing in his providence, is he's condemning sin. That's one half of his decree, is that usage of sin to glorify his justice and his power in the reprobate, the vessels of wrath, is fitted to destruction. Paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for sundry other just and holy ends." Okay, so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. So why is it that God does not always answer that in the way that we would like? Well, here we see. This is exactly why. In his providence, God has a purpose of good even in the sins of his people. Even in those times where he hides his face from his people, he leaves them to their own devices. God wants to show us something. And that is, first primary doctrine, God wants to show us our own sin and corruption. He wants to show us, what would you be like if I left you to yourself? It's not pretty. And we'll see later how this ties in with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But for here, just understand, God has a very good and benevolent purpose. And that's the second thing, that this abandonment of his people for a time... It comes from God's fatherly hand, and it's a benevolent hand. He's doing good to us. He wishes us well. And so when he hides his face, and when he leaves us to our devices, that's his grace to show us how wicked our former sins were, to chasten us, to show us our own sinful hearts as they still remain in the corruption that we have, that we think maybe we're pretty, pretty well off. We're doing fine. I don't need assistance. Oh, is that so? Allow me to show you how much help you actually need. That's what God is doing in these circumstances. And then third, God brings much good 
out of such evil. It's the third major doctrine. God has just and holy ends. He's working good for his people by this. And then paragraph six. As for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God as a righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. Okay, so here again, the wisdom of God manifests itself not merely in his dealings with his people, but also his dealings with the wicked. When he hardens them, when he abandons them, it is so that they may receive the just deserts of their prior sins, their former sins. God is just, and therefore he says, this person has done these evil deeds. He takes and punishes them for their former evil deeds, blinding and hardening them. But it's not merely that God blinds and hardens them. It's also that they blind and harden themselves. They bring this upon themselves. And God might come to them with the very means that would be to their salvation. And what do those means that should be to their salvation accomplish? The direct opposite of what they would otherwise accomplish. Paul said when he preached the gospel... He's a saver of life unto life and death unto death. But it's the same message. The difference is in the hearers. The difference is the blindness of mind that these people bring upon themselves. As he says in Second Thessalonians, they receive not the love of the truth, and therefore God gives them over to strong delusions so that they should believe a lie. Now also... Not only does he expose them to the means that should lead to their salvation, but actually they harden their hearts. But he also exposes them to objects. And their corruption says, Oh, look at how good God has been to me. I'm going to throw myself into this sin. People reason that way often from God's grace even. They'll reason that we should take the grace of God and use it as a reason to be lascivious or wicked, pursue our own lusts. So this is again how the wicked who are abandoned by God, how they're treated in God's providence, what he's doing in their lives. And here, this is a somewhat um, abbreviated uh, doctrine of what the scriptures have a lot to say about God's interaction with the wicked and his providence as well as his interaction with the elect. Okay, so first primary doctrine, wicked men are judged. They're not chastened as the righteous are. They're judged for their former sins. And then the second doctrine, God withholds grace from them to prevent their salvation. Isaiah, when he was commissioned to preach, he was told, nobody's going to listen to you. But I'm going to send you to them to blind their eyes so that their hearts will get engrossed and fat and they will not believe. That's why I'm sending you, Isaiah. The very means that should be for their salvation. God's going to prevent by saying, no, I'm not giving them grace. I'm judging them for their former sins. And then the third major doctrine, sometimes God even withdraws the gifts that they had. They may have had some enlightenment in their understanding. They may have had some taste of the powers of the world to come. And God takes those away in judgment of their sins. And then fourth major doctrine means otherwise leading to salvation lead to such ungodly men's destruction. (coughs) All right, paragraph seven, and then I think we'll conclude for this evening and then we'll pick up chapter six, God willing, next week. Paragraph seven, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a a most special manner, It taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. 
is a very comforting conclusion to this paragraph and to this chapter is God has a special care in his providence for those that he's chosen. And we'll look at that under the doctrine. We've seen the doctrine of election. We'll look more particularly in about Christ and his mediation. But here, the providence of God is not a a mechanistic philosophical understanding that is presented just so that you can be right and have the right ideas in your head. That's not how the Bible presents the doctrine of providence at all. Generally speaking, when God's decree or his providence or predestination or reprobation are brought up for mention, the practical application is that this is a doctrine filled with comfort for the people of God. This is a doctrine by which we can say, even when we think about the wicked who are given over by God to a reprobate mind and withhold God withholds grace from them so that they cannot see and understand, even that's put within the context of how great the love of God is for us, how great he cares about us, how much he's done to save us. And you see this. Just look at the passages that talk about predestination in the Bible and even those that talk about reprobation and the destruction of the wicked, and you'll find that God is using it in such a way as it chiefly brings comfort to the people of God. This also explains the imprecatory psalms. Why is it that we are are taught by God himself to call down curses against his enemies? Well, it's because through that means we receive consolation. They will not triumph. They cannot win. Their schemes will not be accomplished and they will be destroyed because they go on in those wicked schemes. That is to give consolation to the people of God. Such that if you say, well, this is a hard point. I don't want people to think about this. Let's remove this from our teaching. When I grew up, I didn't know Romans 9 existed, actually. I didn't know it was in the Bible. I went to a Nazarene church. They didn't teach on Romans 9. They didn't read it. They didn't talk about it. They didn't discuss it. So when I saw it, I thought, whoa, why didn't I ever hear this? Well, it's obvious. They thought it was an offensive idea, and therefore they covered it over. But by doing that, they robbed all their people who might have been true believers, take all the consolation of the doctrine of election and toss it in the trash. You have no consolation that God loves you. Because you can't actually be sure he did. Because it's all dependent on you and your will, which of course is mutable. So, if it's not dependent on an immutable will, you can't be sure you're saved. So you have to come down to the altar call every Sunday. Pastor's always doing the altar call. Oh, rededicate your life. You know, you're not sure you're saved. Come on down. It's like every week you're running the treadmill of, I'm not sure I'm saved. I got to go to the altar call. And then, you know, you're feeling really good after the altar call. And then by the next Sunday, you're ready to come back again. So, If you take away the doctrine of providence, if you take away God's decree, if you take away reprobation and election, if you take away the imprecatory psalms, what comfort do you leave the people of God with? None. Because they can't be sure God actually loves them or has a purpose to save them or has decreed that he will finish it all the way to the end. They have no consolation. And if the wicked harass them, you're supposed to pretend like everything's okay And, you know, God doesn't really talk that way anymore. He doesn't want us to call for vengeance or anything like that. So there's no consolation that you'll actually ever be avenged on these people. And so this idea of election and reprobation and this whole idea of providence is God has a very good purpose for his people. Not because he has to. Because everything's ultimately for his glory. But because he's chosen to out of his mere grace and favor to take this special care. He is the preserver of all men, especially them that believe. He exercises his providence over everything with special reference to his elect. Christ is head over all things to the church, we're taught. He has universal dominion and lordship, but he has a special eye to his chosen people. All right, so any questions about any of those parts that we've looked at there of chapter 5 concerning God's providence. David, did you have any questions?
Yeah, actually, I was I was struck by the part three where it talks about God and his ordinary providence making use of means and that he's free to work against them at his pleasure. Mm-hmm. I guess what it's saying is that um, that things that he used as, as means in some circumstances, he may work against them in other circumstances. But it seems kind of awkward that he's working against himself in some way. You know what I mean? Can you, can you explain that or elaborate on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So it's important to understand that in secondary causes, God is not tied to the secondary causes. And let me give you an illustration of what it means to for God to work against the means at his pleasure. So um, food ordinarily nourishes the body, but for some people it can kill them. And there can be accidental or there can be embedded things that cause food to kill a person. And for another person, it might lead to their life. But for one person, the ordinary means that's at, that's at their disposal can lead to their destruction. Now, the uh, preaching of God's word is the means of salvation. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If the word of God is preached, does it lead everyone who hears it to eternal life? Does that make sense? I know. I know. So yep. the, the means themselves, that's why we don't trust in means, we trust in God, is because God is not tied to the means, he's free from them, he can do whatever he pleases to do. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Anything else that you had? Nope, not about this time. All right, let's go ahead and close our time together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great and glorious truth that you are a God who rules over all things according to the counsel of your will. We thank you for your works of creation and providence, which manifest your wisdom, your power, your goodness, your justice, and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you work in a special way for the good of your people. Even if we are left to our own temptations and sins, the corruption of our wicked hearts, we know that you have a good purpose even in this which is to show us how much we need your grace, how much we need the gospel, and how strong our corruptions truly are, though we believe ourselves to be strong in virtue, we are really strong in corruption. We pray, Lord, that you would give us both a sober-minded humility over our sins and also a joy unspeakable and full of glory as we think of your work of providence having a special care for your church and your people. Though all things glorify you, yet you have chosen to edify your people, even in these horrible circumstances, though we would be brought as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all things, even these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Give us that same spirit of faith and the joy of your salvation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, class is dismissed. Thank you, David.